Welcome to Inside the Castle, the podcast that goes behind castle doors to have real conversations with real people about solving the nation's toughest challenges. I'm Dr. Nadia Mohandasi, the Emergency Management Continuous Improvement Program, or MSIP, Program Manager. And we're going to talk a little trash today. We have with us Bo Ansley and Matt Tate. And we're going to be talking about the Debris Mission, uh, one of the missions that we perform in support of FEMA under the National Response Framework and Emergency Support Function 3. So uh, let's start with some introductions. Bo, what do you do for the Corps? Hey, I'm Bo Ansley. I'm the Chief of Emergency Management in Mobile, Alabama. I've been in federal service for the past 32 years, and I've been a debris subject matter expert since 2006. My first debris mission was actually Hurricane Andrew in 1992. And oddly enough, I didn't care much for it, but later on I learned to love it. All right. Thanks, Bo. Thanks for being here. And Matt, what about you? What do you do for the Corps? I'm the Disaster Program Manager for the Corps of Engineers Mobile District. Been in the Corps for 23 years, and I've been in the debris cadre since 08 as an SME. All right. Well, thanks, guys. I guess let's start with just kind of a general overview of the mission. So for folks who aren't in emergency management or for folks who maybe just don't really know about the debris mission or what it is, can you kind of just walk us through just the basics, you know, the high-level overview of what that mission looks like? Okay. Part of the uh, emergency support function number three with uh, the Corps of Engineers is the lead agency for public works and engineering. And one of those typical mission assignments that we expect from FEMA after a catastrophic event is debris removal. And of course, debris removal has several faces now. At one time, it was just simply tasking the Corps to remove debris. And we would do so by by letting contracts and using as much internal resources as we had to conduct the operations. But over the course of years, we've seen now that there's more of a technical support element that we're asked to support FEMA with. Okay, so guys, I know there's no one typical mission. Bo, you mentioned, you know, after hurricanes, it's one of our mission sets we expect uh, as long as the state requests it, right? But there are, you know, a couple of different basic types of missions. So I was wondering, Matt, if you could kind of go over some of those for our listeners so they understand sort of the nuances between the three different kind of buckets of mission assignments. We can be tasked under really three different types of debris missions, those being a DFA, a direct federal assistance. That is where state asks for assistance through FEMA. FEMA tasks the Corps to do the full cradle-to-grave mission. Removal, we do all the monitoring, all the QA, QC, safety. It's our whole full gamut, full court press, if you want to call it that. So that's the the mission where we're seeing, like, trucks moving, bunches of debris, people looking, you know, Correct. up high, looking at trucks right. and stuff. We, and that's all core people or contractors that the Corps has contracted to support us, you know, PRT, QAQC processes. We have technical assistance that can be requested from FEMA under technical assistance to where we could go out to the impacted communities, the state, and they are looking to perform the contracts themselves. They have a pre-event contract in place. They just need some guidance on how to go about doing the monitoring. Okay, do we have a monitoring firm? We have a hauling firm. How do we go through this process? What are the guidelines? What are the reimbursement guidelines for FEMA? And we guide them through all those little nuances when it comes to technical assistance. Bo, how about you? One thing that we, we really like to see is when a local FEMA applicant, municipality, state, township, whatever, does their own debris removal. Uh, of course, response needs to go to the lowest level. And only when the locals determine it's outside their capabilities do they ask the state 
And then if the state can't handle the response, then they go to FEMA and then go to the Corps. And that kind of defines what kind of mission assignment we can get. Uh, This day and age, we're seeing more uh, preparedness initiatives and a lot of these FEMA applicants where they have pre-event contracts, which is great. And when that happens, then, of course, our role changes. Instead of being the lead agency for the debris removal, we become a lead agency for the technical assistance or the technical monitoring for FEMA. Yeah, so, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it's really a good news story, right, when we're not asked to do those full DFA, direct federal assistance missions, because that means at the state and local level, they can handle their own uh, emergency response. You know, they've, been, they've had the preparedness activities in place, and it's really about supporting and encouraging resiliency at those levels. So it's not a bad news story when we're not out there moving trucks. It's actually a great news story because it means that resiliency at the state and local levels are there. But you mentioned technical monitoring. I think that's the third type of mission that we were going to talk about. So can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, really. uh, A lot of times we see the technical assistance slash technical monitoring come together in a mission assignment. And oddly enough, it's two terms, but it's essentially three different tasks. Part of that technical assistance, it'll start out with a, a basic assessment where we as subject matter experts are asked to go in for FEMA and just pretty much give a rough order of magnitude. Be able to go in and estimate the volume of debris as well as catalog the types of debris. And then in doing so, have just a a sense of of how the community can overcome the disaster. For instance, know if they have the capabilities internally to do the work, whether it's contractual or with uh, hired labor force. The other is to uh, understand what the infrastructure provides as far as accepting debris. Of course, we never want to see a landfill inundated, but is there a way that it can be handled successfully through reduction, recycling, repurposing, so it minimizes the amount of debris? So if we can provide a little bit of coaching to the the FEMA applicant, then it goes a long way as far as, you know, expediting the recovery as well as keeping costs down. So I'm interested, you said, uh, mentioned something about the reduction, the recycle of debris, kind of making giant piles of sticks into smaller piles, right, for, you know, for lack of a better term. But what do you mean by that exactly? Can you give us some examples of what that looks like? Right, right. Uh, We encourage all the FEMA applicants to segregate their debris curbside. You may have seen this real good-looking graphic that it gets passed around in all the media and social media after an event where we've divided the types of debris in several different debris streams, as they like to call it. There's, of course, vegetative debris, which that stuff can be used uh, as a, a byproduct for uh, fuel that can be ground down so that it's not as big a volume. Uh, and then the second one is uh, construction and demolition debris, where that kind of stuff, you can pilfer through some of it or segregate through some of it and take metals and other things and then crush it and put it in an approved landfill. There's uh, the removal of appliances, which they call white goods, where it can be recycled. Same with electronic debris and and uh, what am I missing? And your hazardous. And household, household hazardous, hazardous waste. Yeah, household. And that also has to go to a different approved landfill. So by segregating it, it's not all going into one big truck and being taken to one landfill. Or we're doing we're doing the environment a favor by segregating it out and reducing and recycling as much as we can. And with the vegetative, it can be reduced in different ways. Like Bo mentioned, you can grind it. We can actually give that to the landfill. Landfill take it and use it as vegetative cover, or daily cover for their landfill. 
In past times, we've given it to farmers. They'll disc it in, spread it out over their farmland, let it rot down, soil amendments. If you burn it, the ash, same way, it can be disc in, be utilized for soil amendments, raise your pH or whatever you need to do. So there's benefits to just the reduction, be it, be it chipping and or burning. The C&D can be recycled metals. They'll pull out the metals and recycle those. E-waste, they'll pull out the heavy metals, the mercury, the lead, whatever, out of the, heavy, out of the e-waste. So there's a whole stream of recycling going on, just, you know, and that's why it has to be separated curbside, or we prefer. Right, and when, when we're tasked to do the technical assistance, like I said, the first thing is the assessment and seeing what the infrastructure of the community allows for these byproducts as part of that initial assessment. Then another part of the technical assistance is, once again, coaching the applicants on how to make sure they have efficient contracts, they follow the policy guidance that FEMA provides, and also they just uh, you know use good best management practice as far as the industry when it comes to picking up hauling, reducing debris. So I do want to break out technical monitoring just a bit more because we can get just a straight technical monitoring mission assignment, right? And I know what we've talked about just now is sort of mingling the two, technical assistance and technical monitoring. So Matt, can you tell me a little bit more about just straight technical monitoring? What does that mean? Yeah, when we're tasked with technical monitoring from FEMA, we are their eyes and ears in the field for FEMA. Typically, the local community town parish, whatever it may be, has their own pre-event contract in place. They're utilizing that contract to haul and remove debris, as well as they have a monitoring firm running some kind of automated debris management system, also known as an ADAMS. We come in as a third-party oversight to ensure that they are doing it within FEMA guidelines. When I say they, the locals contractor is hauling the debris from the curbside. He's not getting on private property or not hauling commercial property We'll go in the towers. We'll oversee loads. We're not changing anything. You know, we're not telling the contractor that's high, low, whatever. We're just observing loads, and we report back through FEMA to the locals what we see. If there are any problems or any things they could correct to ensure, and it all goes back to their reimbursement. Because, you know, if they're hauling a bunch of NLG debris, they're paying this contractor to haul NLG debris, they're going to they're nullify those loads. So it's costing them money and time. So that's really our over, we're in an oversight role when it comes to, or I wouldn't say oversight, we're in a monitoring role, but we do have some oversight for FEMA to say, look, we're seeing this in this area, we need, you need to get this corrected, and we'll push that back through FEMA, through the state, to the locals. And it's all, and then we're part of that debris management task force as well. So kind of like a quality assurance, quality control role. It is a QA role, yes. Okay. The other good thing, or interesting thing is the monitoring mission assignment is a trending mission assignment for the Corps. Historically, FEMA would do a lot of their own monitoring. And I guess around 2017 timeframe, we started getting more and more taskings for the monitoring just because FEMA didn't have the personnel. And then COVID happened. So the Corps is being leaned on even more for that monitoring. The uh, initial part with the monitoring, you know, on the technical support, of course, you need a lot of good technical expertise, subject matter experts, subject matter specialists. But on the monitoring, you can take a few subject matter experts and you can do just-in-time training to get someone able to get out and do the monitoring for us. So a lot of times when we get a technical monitoring mission assignment, we anticipate a training element to go with it. First for our people, but we've also in the past been training the applicants as well as FEMA's personnel. 
Okay. Now, and you mentioned two things I, I kind of want to dig into deeper. So you mentioned technical monitoring is kind of a trending mission assignment for us of late. And then you also mentioned COVID. So I, let's talk about COVID first, because as we all know and have lived, COVID has impacted just about everything in our lives, professionally, personally. So I was wondering what effect the ongoing pandemic has had on the debris mission in the past couple of years. It's my opinion that the biggest impact COVID's had on any of our mission is the number of people eligible and able and willing to deploy on a mission. So that's the struggle that we have is, you know, at the district level as emergency managers is finding people that want to get out the door. There's also been a little bit of restrictions on travel due to the, you know, different elements of COVID, whether it be vaccination status or just even in the early part of COVID, all travel was shut down. Same with FEMA. So FEMA needed those extra bodies, and that's another reason why it continues to trend during and post-COVID. So now I know in some of the other missions that we do in support of FEMA, COVID's really introduced more of a reliance on reach back, right? So folks doing more virtual work. And from my seat, it seems that in a lot of cases, it's actually helped us to kind of streamline and right-size some of our response and recovery missions in our footprint. Do you find that's the same here with the debris mission? Absolutely. And uh, we're seeing, like you said, across all the different mission sets. As far as our traditional debris removal where we would get a direct federal assistance, we have found that there's some individuals on a debris team that don't necessarily have to go forward on their deployment. They can be utilized in the rear, particularly when it comes to administrative duties like doing the travel orders, the funding, the, the staffing, that kind of thing. Also, we're seeing a few other the technical things like the uh, environmental compliance aspects and also the real estate aspects. We can do those in the rears and not have to bring as many people forward. Matt, what are your thoughts? Typically, if we get a large DFA mission, we're going to need a large RFO. We're setting up a mini district. With COVID, we've learned, and as Bo mentioned, utilizing these in arrears, leaving those folks home that can still do that job remotely, reduces our footprint. We don't need this large, big RFO office. We can do it in a smaller footprint, smaller, you know, less people. Overall, you look at the core, we get about 10% of our core employees actually volunteer. And then COVID, you know, I'd say knock that down by at least 30 to 50%. So having that smaller footprint, needing to only deploy, you know, now we're deploying four people versus 12. And we don't need this large footprint that we can do it remotely. We've proven it has worked. Yeah, and, you know, we've got things like the Teams application in Microsoft that we can do uh, collective work together and also have virtual meetings. And, you know, we've learned it in everything we do in in our workplace now because of COVID, working remotely. So just apply it to the response. You're, you're absolutely not necessarily needing all the number of people that you did before. Just the people that physically need to be in the field is what we're trying to utilize now. Right. And just a clarifier. So I know we used an acronym right back there, but for those that might be uninitiated, RFO is a recovery field office. So that's another mission assignment from FEMA. But like Matt said, it's kind of setting a mini district forward. And we'll see those mission assignments for a recovery field office on those events with really large footprints or events that have really enduring recovery missions, those missions that go on for months and months. And in instances, too, where there's multiple recovery missions, maybe we have, you know, a very large temporary housing mission and we have, uh, you know. Concurrent debris, concurrent roofing, all that running concurrently, you're going to need that small office or an office. Right, right. 
So actually, on that note, the length of missions, enduring missions, so I think there's an aspect of debris missions that's often misunderstood or, or maybe just not understood well, because it seems like debris missions are maybe one of the first that we get, right, right after an event, you know, right after a, a hurricane landfall, for example. But it's also one of the missions that has a really long tail, right? It's kind of an enduring mission. And there seems to be some confusion about why that is. You know, if you were there up front, why are you still there months and months after? So I was wondering if you guys could kind of touch on that, explain it a little bit better. The debris mission is typically known as the biggest, the ugliest, and the most costly. And probably the most dangerous. And the most Right. And the most lengthy. It comes down to the local and FEMA and that it comes down to a cost reimbursement. If FEMA approves 100% for 30 days, that being cost reimbursable, that means feds are taking it for 100% for the first 30 days. That means everybody's getting it for free. Debris is going away. Then they, FEMA can come in, they can ask for an extension, or they can reduce it to 7525. There's so many factors that goes into that reimbursement, because it all, it all comes down to brass tacks and dollars for the impacted, you know, for the applicant. How much is this going to cost? How long is it going to take? And who's paying for it? And if they're on the hook for a small percentage, they're willing to let that, that mission drag on. But it make, the debris mission can make the most impact up front as well. You may not have a roof damage, but you could have a tree down in your yard, so everybody could have debris. With it dragging on... It, you know, historically you've seen some communities are really apt to get out there, get ahead of it, get it done as fast as they can. Others, well, we want to wait. We've got VOADs coming in, volunteer organizations assisting in disasters. They're coming in in two weeks, so we're going to let those come in. We're going to let, there's a lot of debris coming, so that delays and delay. I mean, it can be a number of things, and Bo jump in and feel free, that play, and it's like a puzzle piece. I mean, all these puzzles fit together, but it all comes down to the local and the FEMA saying, okay, we're giving you this amount of time, this reimbursement dollars, and then that, that helps drive that goal. I mean, that, that, it's a moving goal line, I'll say that. I mean, the goal is to get done as quick as possible and the least expensive, but it comes down to that reimbursement and that timeline that FEMA sets. Yeah, a lot of times you'll, you'll see right out the gate, as soon as the wind stops blowing or as soon as the you know the weather improves, there's a need for a clearance or a push where we'll just see the community push the debris out of the roadway so response vehicles can get through. So that's kind of the first tipping point in the debris mission assignment. And then later on, you'll get into the actual removal of debris curbside. So you got to give the constituents or the community time to get their stuff out to the curb. And then, you know, once again, uh, people are slow to get back in their homes. The volunteer organizations, they start putting more stuff out by the curb. So we see a need for multiple passes or multiple attempts to go up and down the streets in the community and remove debris. So it takes time to, of course, pick it up and also takes time to give the community more time to get more out. So that's part of the drag. Then, you know, when it's not the Corps doing debris removal, back to the technical assistance and the technical monitoring, that too can have months and months of drag, if you will. Start with the technical assistance. As long as we're providing some value added to the community and to FEMA, they'll keep that mission around. On the technical monitoring, as long as they're moving debris and, and FEMA has a need to observe, then that too will, will last. And we're customarily seeing that monitoring last upwards of two and three months for sizable events. 
Yeah, no, that's a great explanation. I think I think the misnomer, the the misunderstanding comes in when folks who are maybe not as involved in this mission sort of see debris as, well, the event happened and there's one big, you know, tsunami's worth of debris. But it's really more an ebb and a flow of the debris. You know, it, it comes in waves. Right. So, I mean, you got to understand that like you or I, if we were impacted, we still have a job to go to. You know, if we get hit on Saturday, our job doesn't can't stop on Monday. These folks are still working. They still have jobs. They still have families, kids in school. So it's impacted their life as a whole. So you'll see that ebb and flow. On the weekend, yeah, everybody's off for a holiday weekend. There will be a lot of debris hit the curbside if they're doing it themselves or if they, you know, VOADs are out. But it's a full community impact. It's not just in its daily. They're living it. So you're not going to see that they can just stop what they're doing and work on their home, get all their debris out, and it's all gone. It doesn't happen that way. You know, they may have a weekend or they got family come in. Well, all right, we're going to tear out this wall this week. We're going to work on the roof the next week. I mean, it, it comes and goes. They're, I mean, first, they're going to cut their way in first. Well, if it's a you know bad event, they've got to get to their home. So. Okay, thanks, guys. I think that was a really good explanation. Hopefully it covered some of the lingering questions for folks about the length of this mission and, and what it can look like in actuality, you know, in practicality. And then there was one last thing that I wanted to uh, touch on before we wrap things up here. Uh, Bo, you had mentioned it earlier, you know, the technical monitoring, for example, was kind of a trending mission. I know we've had dozens of debris missions, in fact, over the past two to three years from coast to coast, really, for events from wildfires to hurricanes to, you know, everything in between. And so I was wondering if you could talk about some of the recent examples, some of the recent missions. I know you guys have been gone a lot, too, to different places. So maybe just give folks a little bit of a flavor of what it's actually like out there, some of the missions we've had recently. Matt, you were the last out. Uh, most recently just wrapped up a, this was actually a technical assistance mission in Tennessee post-tornado event. And we were out doing this, as Bo mentioned previously, doing the initial assessment. They did have volunteer groups bringing debris to the curbside. That may morph later on into a technical monitoring when the local gets one of the hardest hit areas. They have a contract ready, or an RFP ready to go out for bid. So when they get a contract in place that'll morph into technical monitoring, we uh, Bo was in Kentucky for technical monitoring. Right. It was actually the same same event. Yeah, storm event. So of course the uh, hardest hit was Kentucky, and that was back in December. And of course December is a bad time for response because people have uh, leave to use or kids that uh, they need to be at home with. And uh, I volunteered myself to go. It was interesting. Uh, it was probably, my opinion, the largest natural disaster in the state of Kentucky. And it was a no-notice event, which is always unfortunate because, of course, nobody's expecting it. And the first uh, order of business was the assessment. And me and a team of a dozen or so people went to 26 counties and gave an initial assessment of the volumes and cataloging the debris and an overall just understanding of what capabilities they had. And from there, it went into the technical assistance and technical monitoring, and it's, I guess, be three months into it here in the next few days. And tornadoes are always interesting, too, because things like hurricanes, we have some modeling capability. It's really hard to model what a tornado does because it's inconsistent in its path and also inconsistent in its size and impact. So um, before uh, the tornado event, we've yeah, Hurricane Sally, we, we were six months working technical support and monitoring in Alabama and Florida for Sally. And then we had another event, Hurricane Zeta, come in on top of us. So 
we were essentially running three different operations in two different states. And of course, Louisiana's had their fair share of impacts from uh, Ida. Yeah, Ida this this past year and the year prior to that was Hurricane Laura. So there's a lot of technical assistance and a lot of monitoring being done. Right, that that seems to be our, our big stick right now. That's what we're we're getting after. And the Nashville floods was oh, a technical yeah. monitoring mission as well. Right. So one final question, guys, since you were talking a little bit about these trends, I'm curious because between the two of you, you have decades, literal decades of experience in the debris mission. Where do you see this mission going looking forward in the future? I would see FEMA is going to continue this trend. I mean, FEMA is, you know, not to get on FEMA, they're just low staff. They just don't have the field people that they've had years prior to. And I think they really like the product we provide, really like the expertise we bring to the field. The institutional knowledge of the cadre is pretty deep, and we have the people to get out there. We can respond pretty quickly. So I would see this trend to continue, unless it's just some major event, catastrophic event where the locals and state can't handle it, and it goes to a direct federal assistance mission. I would see that the technical assistance, technical monitoring trend will continue. Bo, how about your take on that? I'm saying I, just based on the way FEMA is structured and the way the Corps is structured, it's just easier for FEMA to mission assign that to the Corps engineers. And as the Corps, we're doing our best to prepare for a a lot more of this in our future. And by preparing what we're doing is we're continually recruiting for our subject matter specialists. And so we we do our best to build a bench with developing subject matter experts. And a lot of the debris districts that we have in the Corps have really stepped up and they're developing more and more people that can assist in the monitoring. One other thing is some of this monitoring is not inherently governmental work, so we're able to utilize some contractual instruments to to get contractors that we can give just-in-time training and also help augment and support us in those types of missions. All right. Well, thanks, guys. I think that was a really good overview of the debris mission for both folks who have a little more experience in emergency management and this mission and then folks who who don't. So hopefully everybody learned just a little bit today. So again, thank you, Matt. Thank you, Bo, for joining us today on this edition of Inside the Castle. We appreciate you and your insights. And to our listeners, we want to hear from you, what topics are important to you and people you're interested in hearing from. Until next time, be safe, be innovative, and be revolutionary.